Some people just don't know when to end, do they? They go on and on and on, and that's a way you can ruin a thing, isn't it? I told you last week that you can't ruin scripture by starting at the end. You can ruin your dinner that way. If you start with dessert, your mom gets mad at you, your appetite is ruined. But with scripture, starting at the end enhances our appetite. It makes us want more. It kind of primes the pump, if you will. And what we find this week is that there are some things that there is no end to. And so you can go on and on and on, and it never gets old. Now, not everything works like that. Many a fine sermon have drug, never from this pulpit, but many a fine sermon have drug on a little too long, and the faithful hear the first 15 minutes of the sermon, and then after that, do you hear much more? Who knows? Many a fine sermon have died a death, a quiet death of going on for too long. Many a good story goes that way too, doesn't it? Maybe you are a person who says too much in a story, who over-explains everything, and by the time you get to the end of your story, you find that your audience is saying, well, (sighs) thanks for sharing. (laughs) If you drag things out too long, you run the risk of saying too much. Happens with sermons, happens with stories, happens with jokes, happens with all kinds of things. But with Holy Scripture, we always want more, don't we? This week we hear St. John have yet another vision of yet another city. It's very similar to what we heard last week. It almost makes you kind of double check and say, I feel like I heard this all before. I feel like last week we talked about this bridal city that was also a people. I feel like, I feel like I've heard this one before. And that's because you pretty much have. At the end of Revelation, John sees the same thing twice, or almost the same thing twice, He has another vision. Of course, the vision, like the one last week, is again stunning. It's another kaleidoscopic cityscape, a bride city people. And this week, we have a whole lot of attention, maybe too much in our estimation, paid to the walls, paid to all the gems and all the jewels. And we'll come to all of that in time. But first, I want to give you the big picture. I want you to understand why John is given another vision. Why is he dragging things out? Because John, John, unlike some pastors, is not simply caught over-exaggerating. He's not simply repeating himself again and again and again. He has a purpose to what he's doing. So yes, he's already seen this city that is a bride of the Lamb, but he also knows there is something else to be, to be shown. What he's here about today and what we're here about with him, we can summarize this way. John is laying out a pattern, okay, a blueprint, if you will, to the city that he saw last week. This is how good architects operate, right? I told you that last week. They have a final vision in mind before they go to draw up the blueprint. And based on that final vision, the future determines the present, right? Based on that final vision, they decide, okay, the foundation needs to be yay wide and yay deep and yay high and all of those good things. That's what John is doing for us tonight. Like a good architect, St. John is given and now gives to the church a blueprint, if you will, for the new Jerusalem. It's as if we're seeing that final city that we heard about last week, but now we're seeing what it looks like in time, in our own history. 
In a way, we should actually have expected just this kind of thing. It shouldn't surprise us that there's yet another vision after last week's vision. After all, God does this kind of thing often. And God never tires of doing the same thing over and over again. We get tired of that, don't we? But God never tires of saying to the sun, rise, or saying to the flowers in the spring to sprout up out of the ground, because our Father is much more lively than we are, right? It's we who get dull, who get bored of the same old, same old, but God loves to do things in the same way over and again. He's like a child that way. If you have little children, or if you have had little children, then you know the monotony that they revel in. Read it again, Daddy but I've already read it 10 times. Again, don't you want a different book? No, 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 daddy. Not a different book, the same book again. And so daddy says, okay, good night, moon. Good night, cow jumping over the moon, right? God loves, he rejoices in doing things again and again and again. And what we find him doing here at the end of Scripture is what he has done throughout. He gives his people a pattern. Remember what happened to Moses. Moses, that first of the great prophets, went up a high mountain, much like the Apostle John, and he saw something there, it says. He saw a pattern. He was given a pattern so that when he came down the mountain, he could build the tabernacle. And in the course of time, it happened again that God gave David, the great king, and his son, Solomon, the great builder, a pattern so that they could build the temple. And if you kept reading in scripture, you would come to this obscure prophet whose name you'll know, Ezekiel, but whose writing is a little less well-known. And you would find that the same thing happens to the prophet Ezekiel. In the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel, there is a vision given to a prophet that is a pattern for the temple. And of course, if you read that pattern, if you read that vision, you might scratch your head and say, well, that temple was never built. And you'd be right, it was never architecturally copied. But what Ezekiel saw was the spiritual reality, the glory that filled the second temple that was rebuilt after Solomon's was destroyed. And that's what I mean, that this is exactly the kind of thing that our God would do. He loves to give his people not only a vision of where we are going in the end, but a blueprint for how to get there. He not only gives the vision, we might say, but he also gives the mission statement. Now, usually when we think of the church's mission statement, we're not thinking about Revelation 21, are we? We're thinking of a much more familiar section of scripture that many Christians call the Great Commission. And you know the words, before Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent his disciples out saying, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. All in one sentence, right? Surely he said it that way. That's the mission of the church, isn't it? To make disciples through baptism, through teaching, and to have Christ with us. But of course, that's a pretty roomy mission. That's the kind of mission that multiplies and refracts out in a thousand different ways. And so it's good that we have not only the command of Jesus, not only his commission, but also this symbolic blueprint, this picture of what the church is to look like in the world. 
I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say it. I don't, I don't know that I've said this from the pulpit, but sometimes you'll hear pastors or teachers in the church say that the church needs to be the church. I don't know if you've ever heard that. The church should be the church. It's kind of an odd thing to say, isn't it? Shouldn't that be obvious? Of course, the church needs to be the church. But see, there's this ever-present temptation for the church to drift, just like any institution. Institutions are constantly being pulled this way and that way. Businesses are being pulled this way and that way. And so they need a mission statement. If you've ever worked for a company that had a mission statement, maybe it was beaten into your head so often, so much, that you still, to this day, could spit back like we had at the seminary. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, exists to, uh, to teach the faithful, to reach the lost, and to care for all. That was part of every email, that was part of every bulletin, that was part of every announcement that was ever made when I was a student at the seminary. And the reason for that is that they didn't want institutional drift. The church is always tempted to drift, do you see? It's tempted to drift because the mission is so darn big. Jesus said a lot of things, and we're supposed to teach the world everything that he has said, and he's said a lot about everything. And so there's a temptation for the church to have to say everything all the time to everyone. The church has to fill all of the holes that exist in the family and in society. The church has to do everything, it seems, under the sun, and everyone in the church wants the church to do more, to be more, to exist for more. After all, Jesus has said a lot about education. God has plenty to say about what it means to be a father, a mother, a husband, a wife, what it is that the government is meant to do, what justice is, what mercy is. Well, in short, there is no end to what the church has to do. And so very often the church becomes like too little butter scraped over too much bread. Churches are constantly tempted to multiply out their programs, to become busy with all kinds of things because, well, the mission is so big and the world is so darn messed up. But what is central to the church being the church? St. John gives us a vision of that. At the heart of his high vision of the church is this picture. What is it that makes the city to shine out? You probably automatically filled it in in your mind when you heard it. When you hear about all these gems and pearls and this pure gold that's somehow as transparent as glass, you probably automatically imagine that city all lit up, right? You automatically fill in that if the city is going to be jeweled, there's going to be light, but that's the central thing for the church being the church. I don't know if any of you are in the market for buying diamonds. It is kind of the time of year to do that kind of thing. And you'll notice when you go into any jeweler's shop that they don't put the jewels in the dark, do they? They don't put them underneath a shadow. They put them in the brightest possible light because they want you to see every last facet. They want you to see every little detail, every little sparkle. Well, if the church is to be the church, and by she I mean we, of course, then we must be bathed in light. And it turns out that the light that we speak of 
is nothing short than the light of Christ, and it is a rather wordy kind of thing. In the church, yes, we kind of play with the lights, and we have plenty of candles, and we have an acolyte set aside to make sure that the right candles get lit in the right way at the right time, right, Jameson? But the more important thing is that the light of Christ shines in us, and not just a little bit or occasionally, but always more and more and more. If the church is going to be the church, if we are going to fulfill that mission, that roomy mission in this place, then we need more light, always more light. Any renewal, any reformation, any revival of the church and its mission and its liveliness and vitality must start here. It must start with the people of God gathered around the light of Christ. Now, there's a time and a place every day for you to read your Bible at home. But the new Jerusalem that John sees is not a bunch of gems all going off in their separate places and being lit up. It's a corporate vision, isn't it? The gems are all together, all in one city, and the same light shines on all of them. In the new Jerusalem that John sees, he has a vision of the church being the church, and it is primarily this, the people of God gathering together to be bathed in the light of Jesus Christ. And to the extent that our congregation is going to be an outpost of this city, of this new Jerusalem, then it is imperative that each and every one of us be here to be lit by Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of other things that we could be doing, and there's all kinds of other things that we should be doing when we gather together. There is no end to the activity and the business of the church. But unless, unless the light of Christ has the priority, then everything will end in darkness. Now, that's the first thing that the church needs. It needs that light and always more and more. But there are two things to the city. The first is the light that scatters the darkness, and the second thing that we need, in symbolic terms, is a jasper wall with foundations covered in every kind of jewel. And you all know what that means, don't you? Yeah. Let's make sure we know what we're talking about. So think of where gemstones come from tonight. They're not grown in a lab, at least they weren't in John's day. Maybe now jewelers can skip the dirty business of having to find ore and refine it, and they can grow it in a lab and sell it to you at some exaggerated price. But where do gemstones come from? Well, they come out of the earth, don't they? They come out of the ground, you know, the same place that we come out of. The same place where Adam was dug up out of. Are you starting to see? The jewels are symbols in John's vision, not of inanimate objects that we can decorate the walls with, but they are men and women and children who God has dug up out of the earth and refined and purified and cleansed and faceted and whatever else you can do with gems. These jewels are symbols of all the nations, we should say. See, in old Israel, there were 12 jewels worked into the high priest's breastplate. He wore over his heart this beautiful necklace of sorts. And those gems, those 12 gems, had the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on them. He carried the people on his heart. Well, in the New Jerusalem, we have something like that, except even better. Jesus, our high priest, wears you on his heart. 
You are those gemstones that Christ has called precious, that he has purified with his own blood, that he has cleansed with the washing of his word, and that he now carries close to his heart. You are these gemstones, this new people of God, and we could spend 12 weeks talking about what each of the gems symbolizes. I'm sure there's a difference, though I'm not entirely sure what it is, between chrysolite and chrysoprase. I'll be taking your suggestions after the service. But the point, the point is clear, even if all the details remain to be worked out. Just as the high priest in Israel carried his people on his heart, so our Lord Jesus carries you on his heart. And his light then shines out into the world, not around you, but exactly through you. The church needs the light of Christ, and it needs you, the little gemstones of his church. Jesus needs you, and the world needs you to be a living and active part of his church, And it is in this church, in this place where his grace gets a hold of us and cleanses and cleans us, his mercy washes and purifies us, his spirit refines and refracts that light out in ways we could never imagine. Does that sound like a high calling? It really should. Does that sound like a mission that is beyond any of us? It really should. When the prophet Ezekiel was shown the walls of his temple, an angel told him, now I want you to measure everything and then read it out to the people of God so they all feel ashamed. I don't know if any of you felt ashamed when you heard about the measurements of the New Jerusalem, but you really should have because you don't measure up and neither do I. That city, that blueprint calls for perfect gems and not one of us could lay claim to being perfect in and of ourselves. Not one of us could hold up our hands and say, I'm perfectly square, Jesus. 12,000 stadia, 144 cubits. Whatever the measurements are, we don't measure up. All have sinned and fall short of this glory. When we consider ourselves in contrast to this vision, to these jewels, it's true that shame should fill us. But it's also true It's also true that God has always been in the business of taking shame away and replacing it with glory. He who clothed the shame of Adam's nakedness with the robe of an animal now clothes you in something even greater, the blood of his son. And that blood can turn your shame into just another vein to refract his glory. It is only those who are too proud who want nothing to be changed in themselves, or those who despair, who think that God can't do anything with me. It is only those who cannot be worked into the city. So let the church be the church indeed. And let each and every one of you see yourself in this vision of John. Let you see yourself as one of these gemstones that is to be refined and purified by God's spirit that is meant to shine with the light of Christ. Let none of us suppose that we don't need one another because here's the wonderful thing. In this city, the glory is magnified the more that it is shared. The more that one light shines through an amethyst and it hits a jacinth and bounces over to a chrysoprase and grows over there to a chrysolite, the greater the glory becomes. And what that means is you jacinths need us amethysts. And you agates need the emeralds that are sitting behind you, and the sapphires in the room, well, they need the rubies. Well, rubies weren't part of the vision, but we all need one another. Do you see? 
the more we are bound together, the more brightly that light of Christ shines on us and through us into the world around. I'm afraid I've dragged on too long now, that I've talked too much of gemstones, and somehow, some way, maybe I've ruined it all. That happens with sermons. But I also trust that when it comes to these things, we could go on and on and on. For there is always more that could be said, that should be said, that must be said, that will be said. But such is enough for today. Be the church, the bride, city, people, church that John sees. To Christ be the glory now and always. Amen.